Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. I'm joined today by Brian Chatwin, president of Right Country Lists and former chief of staff for Congressman Alex Mooney of West Virginia. Mr. Chatwin has worked in campaign finance for most of his career and has a thorough understanding of how the digitalization of campaigns is affecting democratic elections in the U.S. and around the world. Brian, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thanks, Dan. So, Brian, you need money to finance elections in this country, right? Absolutely, right. How much does it cost? Like if you have an election cycle in 2018, how much money was spent on elections in 2018? Like a billion dollars? Billions of dollars, both sides. It's a billion, yes. And it's not just candidates, right? The the super PAC world has really exploded the the amount of money that's spent on races. You could have a person running for Congress, running for the Senate, whatever, governor. And in some states, uh, you have some well-funded individuals that start a super PAC that are friends with a candidate and spend untold amounts of money. What are the rules? Well, there's, there seems to be there's some kind of there's some rules, I guess, that were set up years ago. There's some called the Federal Elections Commission. What is that? And what is hard dollars? What's soft dollars? What's a PAC? And what's a super PAC? Okay, so this will be a deep dive. Deep dive. <laughs> okay, so the um, Federal Elections Committee, FEC, is the regulator of campaign finance law. And campaign finance law was to set up to create a level playing field so that anybody can run for office, raise money, and, and, and be under the same sort of rules as their opponent. And so that basically boils down what the FEC does. They kind of call balls and strikes and regulates the campaign cycle. When you boil it down to the state level, every state is different. So when you go from a federal office down to like a governor's office, every state's different. Um, You have some states that it is like the Wild West and unregulated, really unregulated. Unlimited amounts of money can be raised. Virginia, Iowa, Wisconsin. And then you have other states it's highly regulated. You know, you're capped. Massachusetts. Absolutely. Right, right. So it's it's very unique and very different uh, when you get into uh, raising money for campaigns or for candidates. Uh, you brought up super PACs. What's a PAC and what's a super PAC? Sure. Well, there's multiple different levels of PACs. A um, PAC is a political action Political committee. action committee. Sorry. Yes. And a political action committee could be something like a, a member of Congress has a leadership political action committee that they use money to promote causes that are important to them. You can have industry groups that have political action committees that support their objectives. So that's on the very basic level. Then you have something called a super PAC, which, again, has different levels of classification, but really wants to engage in the electoral process. What was the Citizens United ruling and why is that important? So this is a few years ago. uh, Citizens United was a, a group that challenged under free speech how much money could be spent on elections from average citizens, what they could give, what they could donate. And the Supreme Court sided with uh, Citizens United saying that it's not proper to regulate the amount of money that's spent on elections under certain rules and certain restrictions. So that really gave a rise to the super PAC. And the super PAC has let individuals um, who would otherwise be limited to, say, $2,800 contribution to a candidate. Which is the maximum in a federal election. Correct. Yeah. For a primary and for the general elections, 2,800 each that's one. right. That's right. And so if I was a wealthy individual. A millionaire, if you were a millionaire. Yeah, or maybe more. Right. Uh, and I had some millionaire buddies. And let's say, Dan, you decided to run for Congress. We really like Dan. So we would we would start a PAC and we would fund it with 
as much money as we wanted. And then we could run television ads and we could put up yard signs and we could do everything under certain rules, certain rules they have to still conform to, but they were not restricted by the $2,800 hard dollar limit. But they can't coordinate with the campaign. Cannot coordinate with the campaign. And so you asked about hard dollar versus soft dollar. Hard dollar is, again, using the example, Dan's running for Congress. I can write him a $2,800 check of hard dollars. That's, That's the beginning of the end. And Dan's campaign can use it for anything he wants. Soft dollar is this other thing where I'm, I'm a multimillionaire. I can put in money into this pack and this can be spent on as well helping my friend Dan get elected as long as there's no coordination and that sort of thing. Again, there's rules on how that money can be spent and what they can say. In this so, so is donating money a form of free speech? Well, that's what the Supreme Court said under Citizens United. That Absolutely. So I have lots of aunts and uncles who complain saying, Dan, there's too much money in politics. You're in the business. What's your reaction to that? You know, it's a, it's a really good question and it's a really good charge. I was reading something today where the projection for this presidential election. 2020. Yeah, is going to be something like $20 billion spent, both sides. Uh, Unbelievable. All in. All, you're right. Unbelievable, right? And $20 billion. $20 billion. And I think you're, we're going to talk maybe about yeah. the international yeah. uh, world and that how they- boggle their minds. Boggles their mind, right. And it's really unheard of in many other countries. They wouldn't even consider this, yeah. this type of thing. In looking at the Democrat primary, the DNC has set up rules for candidates to qualify for the debates. And half, the, half those rules are money related. Uh, for the November debate to qualify to be on stage, the Democrat National Committee said you have to have raised any, any sort of dollar, any contribution from 165,000 people, individual people, individual people across 20 states. That's a very big lift. That's a lot. You have to. How would you reach those people? Right. It's very expensive, right? And they, so they hire people like you. They hire people like me. Yeah. And so you do. You do Facebook advertising, and you see these emails or stories about give these a dollar. Guys. Give a dollar, right? Well, that dollar is. It doesn't really do anything for the overall grand scheme of thing of running a television ad. Right. Television ads are millions of dollars. Right. It's all about trying to to qualify for this debate. So they can be on the main stage, so they can be a viable candidate and, and, and raise money, you know, and do what they will do. But I think this is a very interesting thing that's happening in American politics right now. Just let me go back. 20 years ago, there wasn't Facebook. Right. There really wasn't the 2000 election cycle. I don't know if there even was fundraising on digital, was there? When was the dawn of the digital fundraising age? Right. So the firm that I work for just celebrated its 20th, last year's 20th year in business. So really, 20 years is not that long a time. And that was one of the first contributions from George Pataki, who was running for- He was the moderate Republican running for governor That's of right. New York State. It's probably right. his re-election, not even his election. That's right. That's right. So this is relatively new in the grand scheme of things. 30 years ago, if we'd reround the tape, there was a revolution probably in the set 40 years ago- there was something called direct mail. What is direct mail? Right. So I think most people nowadays will have got some sort of direct mail solicitation it's of junk, some kind. Junk mail. I would you say. Call it that. I would say that the, <laughs> the direct mail folks would take take umbrage of that. But it's basically a, an appeal for financial contributions. And direct mail, with all all the digital things that are happening in this world, direct mail is alive and well. And some would say, if you're ta- if we had a direct mailer sitting next to us, he would say, he or she would say, you know, we can actually do it better than, than email, than Facebook, because we know exactly where you live. We know exactly what your mortgage is roughly. We know how many kids you have. We know what magazines you subscribe to. Therefore, we can target a message right to you. So, so if I eat Dunkin' Donuts and I drive a pickup truck yeah. and I'm an NRA member. Yeah. I'm probably a Republican. If I have a Subaru 
I drink lots of wine. I go to Starbucks, and I I don't know what some other some other signal. I know you're a Democrat. Right, right, exactly, and and you know. So you micro target. Micro target, but what they will what they will argue is. Unlike email, for example, which sometimes can be ignored, sometimes an email message will go into your spam folder, something that goes to your mailbox, you're most likely at least to look at it. As you rifle through your mail, you're going to look at it. They will say that's more so than maybe an email solicitation that goes to your spam folder that you'll never look at. So for 100 emails that go as a solicitation, how many end up being opened? I mean, I think the industry standard uh, used to be uh, if we could get a 10% open rate and a 5% th- click-through rate, meaning they open the email, they read the email, and they click on the links that are in the email, that was like the gold standard. That's the gold standard. It's less now. And how about in direct mail? I'm not a direct mail guy, so I don't know what those are. But I do know that the direct- It's a little bit higher. Yeah, and the direct mail guys are very happy with where they're at. They're alive and well. Back to the Democrat requirement, the 165,000 donors across 20 states- that's done by direct mail too. Uh, they're sending these these direct mail solicitations to people's homes. How much does it cost to send a letter like that? Fifty cents? More because it's it's posted. So I'm sending a dollar to get a dollar. You're sending a dollar to get a dollar. Yeah. And how much does an email? What's the industry standard for sending an email? Well, email is very very cheap. I mean, we're talking fractions of a penny for one email. Right. That's why most campaigns turn to email first because it's very inexpensive to send to. So there's been this other thing. So we were talking earlier about transparent. So the FEC tried to set a level playing field. One of the things they tried to do was also make it transparent, like who is giving to who. Right. Super PACs, it's a little bit unclear. It takes a while to figure out who's giving. Correct. There's also some other ways in which you can, in essence, hide how you give this money. There have been a number of instances in the last 10 or 15 years, uh, I think on both sides of the aisle, where if you've given money, they're collecting names saying, okay, well, Brian and Dan gave to Elizabeth Warren. And you should boycott Brian's store and Dan's store because Dan and Brian gave to Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Weaponizing the transparency. You must know what I'm talking about. What's your reaction to that as a phenomenon? Yeah, um, one of the Democrat candidates. Julian Castro. Yeah, he made some waves about a month ago suggesting that, uh, I think maybe he published actually. He published. published, He tweeted out the name of 12 names of people who had maxed out to Donald Trump in his congressional district. And it turned out two or three of them had also given money to him and his brother's campaigns. But. Right, right, right. So it was a little awkward. But. Right. You know, I mean, I, I think that if you want to respect someone's freedom to participate in elections, it becomes dangerous to weaponize that. Uh, if you want a democracy that participates in free and open elections, weaponizing that actually retards that. It, it causes people to hide. It causes people to... To, to uh, go to super PACs. Yeah, right. I, I don't think that's a good idea. I think that we should always try to take the high road. Let me move to the international world. I mean, yeah. I've been an election observer in Ukraine, mm-hmm. in Guatemala, and Argentina. Mm-hmm. And you have clients, international clients. Mm-hmm. You've been involved with elections. Do people vote on national security and foreign policy issues? In the United States? In the United States. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a vote-moving issue. Absolutely. Right. I mean, you could just look at the election of George Bush. I think you can point directly. Yeah, as a war president, he was reelected because it was – I think that's right. Absolutely. One of the things I've seen on the Republican side – I don't know if, I, if there's something similar to this on the Democratic side. There may be – is the issue of um, – Ambassador Bolton set up a PAC called Bolton PAC. What was Bolton PAC? And why was it so special? Because I think it's quite interesting and I think it's relevant to – because we talk often here in Washington, like we need political will to do hard foreign policy – make hard foreign policy decisions. 
or take a hard for national security decision. That often requires Congress. These people are elected, mm-hmm. and how they're elected is often, you know, they're oftentimes campaign finance and getting money in primaries actually matters to their their ability to actually be viable candidates to then get elected and then participate in the policy process here in Washington. Mm-hmm. So, so it's actually been an important innovation. So what is and was Bolton back? Well, the Bolton Pack, like many other individuals who started PACs, super PACs, uh, was an ability for those individuals to participate, raise money, participate in the electoral process, just like any other super PAC. I don't think the Bolton PAC was was unique in, in no. any regard into what happens day in and day out. What I thought was unique is that it was a foreign policy specific PAC. Absolutely. But again, you'll see many PACs that have themes like that. They will want to support candidates who are favorable to certain foreign policy issues. On the Democrat side, you'll have super PACs that support LBGTQ candidates. Sure, you know, and, and, and I think that's all good part of the American process. And, and so if you're a person who wants to support a certain foreign policy issue or LGBTQ candidates, then then the Supreme Court under Citizens United said this is how you can vote with your dollars or how you can you can use your dollars to support or advocate, push these issues. The point I'm, I'm making about the Bolton Pack is John Bolton, I think in the 2016 cycle, I don't know if he raised $10 million. It was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. Let's say it was 10, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it was like $10 million. Sure. He endorsed... He called each of the candidates and spoke to them and quizzed them. And then he gave them $5,000 in the primary and $5,000 in the general. He endorsed them. So $10,000. Some of these were first-time candidates. So $10,000 early is a lot of money. Absolutely. Right? If you're running in rural Wisconsin or rural West Virginia, you need probably several hundred thousand dollars. So $10,000 is a lot of money, right? Absolutely, yes. So he had a chance to both engage them yep. and have a, d- develop a dialogue with them. Yep. But he also was able to put his finger on the scale of people who he thought were going to support strong. You know, I think I'm sure Mike Gallagher in the Wisconsin's eighth district. I'm sure he's endorsed by Bolton Pack. Yeah. He's a former Marine, but he endorsed a hundred people like that mm-hmm. and made them one. And then he made he used the money in several races to spend several hundred thousand dollars and do TV ads. That's right to swing the the race. So oftentimes I think foreign policy analysts like myself mm-hmm. don't want to think about the dirty politics side of this. Right. But someone's got to get elected first right. for us to go. Those people that are on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee or on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, they had to win a primary. They had to run, decide they're going to run for office. They had to win a Republican or a Democratic primary. Then they had to win a general election and then they had to keep winning for a while to get onto those committees and then become committee chair. That's not, doesn't happen just by magic. No, it doesn't. Right? You agree with me? Right? I totally so, agree. Totally so agree. I think there's a little bit of a disconnect in the policy community from sort of not appreciating. Lindsey Graham, to his credit, set up a bipartisan PAC called the 150 PAC. 150 PAC is the 150 account is the budget for diplomacy and development. And so he is supporting Republicans and Democrats who have a internationalist perspective on foreign policy, especially on development and diplomacy. It's clear to me that it's not wasn't as successful as John Bolton's PAC, but I think it's an interesting and important innovation. So I think the political process matters. I think camp- whether there's too much money or not, at least given the current rules, this is what we got, right? Is that basically the- Absolutely. I think the- You the, need to- And per- you have to participate or someone else is going to fill the void. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think the, the Bolton PAC was a very interesting example of what someone who has a certain point of view in the world can actually do and accomplish. And he actually- I, I would argue that he- became national security advisor partially because when he was up for being considered for national security advisor, he had 100 people on Capitol Hill 
who said he's the smart he's the smartest guy they've ever talked about foreign policy, and he's he's a really smart guy. Well, he was he, certainly a known entity. He was a very known entity right. to a lot of people, right. and so he had helped a lot of people get elected. You want to know an interesting story, Dan? Yes. Okay. 2014, I was doing a race for a congressional candidate. Went to the mail one day, and all of a sudden, opened the mail, and there was a check for $1,000 from a guy named Donald J. Trump. Really? And Donald Trump in 2014, so this is two years prior to running for president. Yes. Sent $1,000 checks all over the country to Republican candidates who needed it and who were going to win. And so he himself, using sort of your your yeah, thoughts about bottom. John Bolton, he himself put his name out there to lots of men and women who ended up being elected to Congress, Senate, whatever. So he himself was a known entity when he ran for president two years later. Very interesting. And if you, you know, this is all disclosed in the, the FEC, the Federal Election Committee, you can, you can pull some of this information and see, oh my gosh, Donald Trump in 2014 he gave it, he was gave giving money. People yes, more. was giving money away to candidates, supporting Republican candidates, maybe knowing that down the road. Uh, he had it in the back of his mind. 18 months later, I might need to make a phone call to say, hey. I hope you know. you'll consider thinking yes, about me. Exactly, exactly. So let's move to the international okay. realm. So there's lots of, you know, I've lived in a number of countries. The campaign finance laws of Argentina are very hard to understand in my yeah. mind. They're kind of they're not very transparent. In Spain, where I lived for a time, they're heavily regulated, and everyone gets like a three minute slot at lunchtime. And so <laughs> each every all twenty candidates get three minutes, and that's right. like that's it. Right, right. How does this? Are people raising money from small donors in, digitally online? In developing another country? It's very difficult. And and one of the reasons is it's incredibly difficult in most countries is because of privacy laws. As a digital marketer, you use the tools that are available to target someone. To like You talked about earlier about driving a pickup truck or whatever. Right. You know, that's a certain type of person. We have that information because there's- It's in the quasi-public domain. It is. In the United States, there's not as restrictive privacy laws. It's no secret that the reason there's no Silicon Valley in the EU is because of the privacy laws. And the rules there. and the rules and the, the, the enabling environment, the rules of the game. Exactly. And so we had several meetings with Taiwan and talk about some of their processes, their election process. And personal data protection laws in Taiwan make it near impossible to do any sort of... Like if you want to buy an email, it's probably... Impossible. Very... Because you because if you send that email, if I was to send that email, I was a candidate running or whatever, uh, I'd be fined. That's it. You're fined. That's <laughs> and, amazing. And so there can be... It's very difficult to engage in that sort of outward reach from a campaign. Now, you can opt in, but how many people really, you know, Google DemocratNationalCommittee.com, RepublicanNationalCommittee.com in our country. How many right. people really opt very, in? Very, very few. few. You have to outreach, right? You, you have, have to, to touch them. You have to touch them. And in, in many, many countries, not just Taiwan, you have these, these personal data protection uh, laws that make it impossible for marketers, for campaigns, to whatever, to reach out and touch them through all sorts of different, not just email, but through Facebook and Twitter or, or So if whatever. you're concerned about really big money in politics, yeah. you've got to you would want it possible that small donors could give five dollars. A million people give five dollars. Absolutely. I mean, how else are you going to? Otherwise, you then have to go to a handful of rich people, right, to finance a campaign. I was in Ukraine over the summer, and I said, okay, and this was in July. I said, how much did I asked around? There's 50 million people in Ukraine, and I said, how much does it cost to run a presidential campaign? And they said about 50 million dollars. That's what I thought. And mm. I was in Guatemala this summer. How much does it cost to run for president in Guatemala? It was like. 10 or 15 or something. Mm -hmm. It's a smaller country. Mm -hmm. If you can't get a million people to give $15, you've got to go to a, a handful of really rich people yep. to give you the $50 million. Yep. And it's probably a lot less clear and a lot less transparent right. 
And it favors the incumbent. And it favors the incumbent. And so if you have a if you have a ruling party in a certain country and there's a, a Democrat election coming up and there's no grassroots donor support, then that ruling party through working with crony friends right. and crony capitalists who've got right. crony arrangements. Right. Government contracts. They're incentivized. They're incentivized right. to write you a million dollar check exactly. to keep the gravy train flowing. Absolutely. And and so those those in my next out- life I want to come back as a crony capitalist. Right. right. It's a pretty good deal. Right. <laughs> So those that are out there saying, you know, there's too much money in politics and 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 this type of thing, yeah, I hear that argument, but let's not go the whole way where then the power is just controlled by the elite. Well, I mean, heck, look at the last election cycle where on the Republican side where you had Jeb Bush who had a hundred million dollars. You could argue that he he had the the establishment money moneyed, but he didn't have the he didn't have the grassroots support. Uh, to take him over over the top, right? And so I, my fear is that if you don't have a system that doesn't, doesn't allow for this, yeah, you're going to just end up with this ruling party, ruling powers, crony capitalists running and controlling. Not just government. in the United States, but anywhere. Anywhere. So having a, a, a small d democratized way for small dollar donors to donate yeah. is a healthy part of any democracy. I believe it is. Absolutely. Can I just ask you, I've heard a lot of it. If I said to you words, I'm going to just have you word associate. Bots and blockchain, do they come across your radar screen, those those two terms? Well, sure. Bots are- I are, don't even know what they are. Okay. Really. And so, they're supposed to be bad. I just don't know what they are. So bots are something that we deal with in email all the time where, very technical, but essentially it's automated computer programs that are mimicking human beings online. And it hits email, it hits social media, it, any sort of platform fights against this. It, you never want a computer algorithm to mimic the activity of a human being. Right. I, I think it, you know, marketers drive them crazy. They don't know what's going on. Are, they, are these real people that are interested in my product or not real people? Blockchain's a, a, a money thing. Blockchain is a way to transfer money outside the banking system. Have you, have you seen it being used in campaign finance? No, not yet. We saw well. That's not true. We we did see some Bitcoin when Bitcoin became very popular. Uh, there were some Two years ago. There were some gr- before that. There were some groups that got together to try to push the FEC to make some rulings on Bitcoin, uh, which they did not do. I think they're still trying to figure out what to do with Bitcoin because the money becomes where does the money come from? And and the FEC is really concerned with the origination of money. Does it come from your personal checking account? Or is it some blockchain account that's online? So, so, so Brian, we've got, you know, in 1980, there were something like 60% of the world countries were authoritarian countries and 40% were democracies. Mm-hmm. Today, it's flipped. Mm-hmm. 30 or 40 years later, it's 60% are democracies and 40% are authoritarian. I continue to be a democracy optimist that we're going to need to, you know, we're going to see even more democracies over time. But at the end of the day, Brian, we, in almost every country I can think of, there's some private financing of politics in a democracy. Is that has that been your experience? Sure, I would say absolutely. In your mind, rules like having transparency, yeah. allow for the little guy and gal to yes. to, to have a, a chance to participate. Right. Those are really important things. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I just think that the more you can make a, a fair and open process that's a, that's available to everybody, the better for small d democracy it is. I mean, I, I have to say, I'm a little bit cynical, but I, I think the Democratic National Committee did a, a good thing with some of these rules to try and demonstrate sure. that you had popular support. But I'm thinking of a couple of people on that stage who basically bought their way on the stage. I think Tom Steyer, right. you know, basically you right. know, hired a number of yeah. fine guys like me, guys like you, 
right. and said, I'll spend a dollar to get a dollar. I'll yeah. spend two bucks to get a dollar. Right. Maybe more. Or five dollars to get a dollar. Right. To get on and stage. And so it was a little bit kind of fake, you know, but he's on the stage. Now he has a chance to participate. Right. And then there's some other folks who just came a little bit short or yeah. whatever. You know, so I think whatever rules we're going to set up are probably going to always be have some imperfections to them. Absolutely. And it's not terrible. I, I think that the Democrat National Committee has done a good job at least publishing the rules. Everyone knows what the rules are. They can play by the rules. And at the end of the day, there has to be some sort of winnowing process. You just can't endlessly have 20, 30 candidates on stage. At right. some, I mean, at some point, you're going to have to have a nominee. So if this is a way that they believe they can winnow down the number of candidates they have, then that's not such a terrible that's thing. Such a terrible it's thing. not such a terrible thing. So are you you're demo- ultimately if you have a if you have a new democracy or you're a mature democracy, issues of campaign finance matter. Definitely. And it also matters. It also impacts the kind of candidates that run and the kind of folks that get elected, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that at least in America, I think anyone who wants to run for Congress needs to understand they have to participate in the money game. You have to be able to raise money to to fund your campaign. The way we look at it is every campaign is like a startup. It's a startup business. They start from zero, they raise a bunch of money, and in November, they are back to zero because they spend all their money on the election. That's our system. There's those that advocate for public financing of elections, which is a whole different half-hour conversation, Dan, whether you should have private contributions or public financing of, of elections. I believe in the private financing of elections that every, it allows for everyone to have a voice. Everyone should have a voice. And uh, I think that's healthy. All right. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thanks, Dan. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 